So come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you failed. Come because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan. And today on the pod, we have a special guest, uh, one of my best friends, Dan Rempel. Dan is a native of Niverville, Manitoba, and currently lives just down the street from me here in Winnipeg. And I have him on the pod today because both of us started uh, PhDs in theology in the UK around the same time. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about his research. Uh, But before we get into that, I wanted to start off, Dan, by uh, telling you that this podcast, one of the, the big things that we're exploring with our guests is what do you, what is faith to you? Uh, so I guess I'll hand that over to you. What is faith to you? Uh, thanks for having me. It's, it's good to be here. I thought when you asked me to be on the pod a couple of weeks ago that hopefully we could meet in person to do this, but we're like <laughs> yeah. two blocks away doing this still in over the internet um but <laughs> let's yeah let's dive into your question that that's a really a really good question a really really tough question for me to answer because i think um as as i think we'll get into in in a little bit um how i understand the christian faith uh as a whole i, I guess ha- has been changing a lot over the last couple of years um yeah i've been working uh with and alongside people with, with disabilities, with intellectual disabilities for, for a number of years, uh, pursuing that line of, of thought in my schooling. And so questions of faith um, have taken on a bit of a new meaning for me. Um, I could come at it from a couple of different angles, I guess. Um, sure. I, there is the Christian faith, which, which I, I suppose you could uh, define as um, a system of uh, beliefs, practices, or um, guidelines, I suppose, that kind of govern the way that that we operate in the world. Um, A very, like, um, uh, definitive, I guess, like this, there's this thing out there that that kind of defines who we are, and we all kind of, people who adhere to it are lumped together in, in, a, in a singular group, singular. So is that kind of the sense of faith as like the the religion, the like the religious system? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's that, but then I, I do think that there's also um, the act of faith. Um, I remember uh, early on in my years, I thought faith was was something that was given to you. Mm. Um, and if you didn't have enough faith, you needed to you needed to pray for more faith. And, oh. and it was something something that was received from above, I guess you could say. Um, right. Then in, in later years, I um, well, we were studying at Providence together. I remember talking with uh, with one of our professors, Gus Conkle, and he was like, "No, faith is an act. Faith is something you do. Um, it's it's uh, equivalent of trust. Um, it's um, right. Yeah, it's assuming that something outside." of you is going to act in the way it's supposed to um, and, and kind of living into that reality. And now I would probably fall somewhere in between there. Um, faith, faith as an act is, is hard to define. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a mix of something that, that we give and then as something that we receive as well. 
So um, just going back to when you were young and you saw faith as something uh, that you would receive from God, what like um, what would the nature of that gift be? Like, what would it look like? How would you know that you'd received something called faith? Like, what was the content of what faith was in order that you could recognize that you'd received it, if that makes sense? I think it was tied very closely to a certainty of belief. Okay, um, so, so confidence was kind of like the... Yeah. That you would receive. Yeah. And so like doubt would be the opposite of faith or oh, okay. um, even even to a certain extent, like wrestling with questions and not having a, not being able to land on a definitive answer might might be uh, an opposite of faith. Uh, right. Faith faith was linked very closely to certainty. Right. Uh, so then so then Gus's kind of suggestion that it was something more akin to trust kind of opened up room for doubt to coexist with confidence yeah it was very liberatory uh for me to uh receive that that suggestion from him because um i mean i'm sure i'm not alone in this like the the christian faith is especially these days there's very little certainty often in in the questions that i'm dealing with sometimes i feel like i can barely keep my head above water and if if that kind of like near drowning state is the opposite of faith, then that's, that's a pretty dangerous <laughs> assumption. But, yeah. but um, if in that kind of near drowning state, we can, we can continue to put our, our trust, something and kind of even take like small, small active steps into something else um, and just say, okay, I don't, I might not necessarily believe this with a hundred percent of my, my rational mind. I can at least step into it in faith um, and, to trust that that God will work in this, then um, I feel like there's just uh, a lot more room for the the whole of the human experience within um, an understand to operate within an understanding of faith. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, I just I spend a bunch of time. Well, my, a lot of my uh, doctoral work is on on this guy Wendell Berry, who's this agrarian uh, writer from the states, and uh, in one of his novels, Jaber Crow. Uh, the the main character Jaber discovers that he's entered into the way of faith, which is actually the way of ignorance, um, which has long resonances in the Christian mystical tradition. But uh, it, it's this kind of notion of like uh, he discovers that he is a man of faith because he's kind of a seminary dropout is mm. is who he is, and he discovers kind of the way of faith precisely like in kind of the ignorance and the, mm. like the not knowing what's going on, which. Uh, well, that was a great comfort to me anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Um, so we've known each other for almost 10 years now. And um, we went to Providence together. And uh, I think, actually, well, you've had an outsized influence on my life. Obviously, you were uh, we were in a band together uh, in Queen's Brigade. And you were in my wedding. I was in your wedding. Um, and we've kind of like been going along this, this journey of theology together, mm -hmm. uh, since the beginning. Now you started off, um, doing more biblical studies, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, what, what prompted a shift to theology for you? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's a, a question that I'm not sure I've totally reconciled within my, <laughs> um, yeah, we really shouldn't be dividing the disciplines anymore. But <laughs> yeah, no, but it, but it is uh, still a thing within academia. Um, 
yeah, when I when I uh, enrolled in college, I I didn't really have any plans of what I was doing. I just wanted to take some Bible courses. I found after my first year that I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but I liked my Bible courses, so I would just kind of continue on um, right. taking Bible courses. And throughout throughout um, throughout our undergrad, we yeah we were able to take a lot of courses together. That was really great. But one of the things uh, about Providence was that they didn't offer a lot of theology courses. It was yeah, most of the the faculty that made up the biblical and theological studies faculty were biblical scholars, uh, which is great. Um, and I learned a lot from them. Um, and I really valued and cherished my time learning from them. Um, so then when I enrolled in my MA, I was still, still wanting to do biblical studies, but, um, I had discovered this, uh, this new fellow by the name of Carl Bart who started oh, yeah. capturing my attention. Um, and um, so I was reading Bart um, and uh, reading reading uh, secondary material around him and being very captivated by the way that he was addressing certain questions. At, right. While at the same time, finding myself to become more and more limited by the way that I was seeing that the Biblical Studies Guild had, had kind of operated the um, the the lens of historical criticism, uh, it it just seemed to, not to be something that I was interested in doing. Um, right. I I went as far as at one point thinking that historical criticism had had no good in the way that we interpreted the Bible. I don't I don't I don't quite fall that heavily against it anymore. But but what I what I saw was. Um, a lot of biblical scholars, especially in the Old Testament, which is where I was spending a lot of my time, were simply more interested in kind of uh, excavating what kind of the the text meant in it, to its original audience, uh, or even like how did the text come to be, like pulling together different source material, drawing on like different like ancient Near Eastern mythic texts and, and that kind of stuff. And it, it just kind of seemed to go against the the reason that I enrolled in biblical studies in the first place, which was um, that the for me the Bible is one of the foremost places where we encounter God, right. and it, and it seemed to me that that the guild was was stripping that possibility away um, by not going far enough with their interpretation of the biblical text, and especially in Old Testament studies. There was such an aversion to talking about Jesus in any way. And I figured, well, if I can't talk about Jesus, like, right. what's the point? And well, so, they, I, I, yeah. They, they talk about, like, the ugly ditch, right? Uh, this yeah. 18th century uh, thinker named Lessing, he, he posited this ugly ditch between what it meant and what it means. Mm-hmm. And it seems like um, what you're describing is you found yourself on stuck on the side of what it meant with no way to get across that ditch to what it means, eh? Exactly. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I made the, the switch to theology, I suppose, although it was never really like a a hard switch until really I I wrote my thesis. I was still, I was still taking Bible courses amidst my theology courses, but I found a little bit more freedom, um, in the world of theology to, 
to kind of talk about what I wanted to talk about, um, which really at the end of the day was was Jesus. And now that I'm over on the theology side of things, I find that sometimes um, theologians just disregard the Bible. And so uh, um, there's a little bit of kind of going back back and forth between the two. Um, oh, yeah, the Bible is just there to, to provide evidence for the philosophical system you prefer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you read it once and then that's good enough. Yeah, right? that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Uh, <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, so you a joke. <laughs> yeah, you went to Canadian uh, Mennonite University, um, and you abandoned me at Prague. <laughs> I almost followed you to CMU, um, but then my supervisor at Providence uh, convinced me somehow, with uh, I don't know magic or something, to to stay there and pay more money. Uh, but. I, like my sense uh, from being friends with you was that part of your decision to go to CMU was a little bit to kind of dig back into your Anabaptist uh, heritage. So for those yeah. of you who are listening, uh, the fact that Daniel's last name was Rempel and he was from Niverville, I'm sure most, some of you at least guessed that he was a Mennonite already. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more. I, I see you posting stuff about... I don't know, Anabaptist theology and all this stuff. And I just, I, I'd love to kind of like dig into that with you a little bit and how has growing up in a Mennonite church, I spent a bunch of time at your church. I was a member there for five mm-hmm. years, I think. Uh, and, but like how that has shaped you and how that's kind of like um, given shape to your faith today. Yeah. Um, I don't know how, how wide your listenership is at this moment, but I'm going to assume that maybe there are people listening to this who, who don't know the, the spiritual landscape of southeastern manitoba um (laughs) so uh yeah growing up in in the the small town of neighborville um back back uh very quick history lesson in the in the 1870s when uh, when the government was was trying to rid the land of uh, metis and indigenous people and fill it with white settlers they um, they convinced a, a lot of Mennonites who were living in Russia at the time to to come settle this land and farm this land in southeastern Manitoba, um, stretching from from Niverville to Steinbach, Grunthal, Cleefield, all these very small towns that still exist today. Um, but it, it meant that um, uh, these Mennonite people who came and settled, who had traditionally been kind of closed off uh, to the other outer world, kind of very heavy example of this in the world, but not of the world, not even associating with the outer world. A lot of the time um, came to, came to grow up and form these communities who are still in existence now, 150 years later. Um, So, so I grew up in one of these towns, one of these, these towns populated mostly by Mennonites and growing up, I only knew Christians and I only knew Mennonite Christians um, I think I was probably around the age of six or seven when I, for the first time, met somebody who admitted to me that they had not gone to church earlier that Sunday morning when we were hanging out in the Sunday afternoon. So, like, oh, my whole world was 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 this Christian world and specifically this Mennonite Christian world. My only other uh, exposure to any other Christian group growing for most of my growing up years was um, it, our town combined with uh, one of the French Catholic towns to uh, we combined our hockey teams. And so I, I knew these guys that grew up in the Catholic church, but in my mind, they were pagans. 
<laughs> because they oh, didn't no. live up to the standard that that I thought that Christians uh, should right. li- adhere to. I've uh, since repented of, of those beliefs, <laughs> and I don't consider that to be the case anymore. But but that was how I grew up, and so by the time I I got to to Providence. I at least kind of knew a little bit more that, that there was more to the Christian faith than, than just Mennonites, but, uh, but I still hadn't really been exposed to it. And um, so then at, at Providence, you, you encountered a lot of Anglicans, especially at that time, there was a, a very heavy Anglican presence on the BTS faculty. Um, but, al- but also uh, one, of our, one of our professors is Pentecostal. He was very formative. Um, on my experience at, at Providence and and uh, a couple other different denominational backgrounds uh, swimming in the waters there as well, which I found to be a very enriching experience to learn from these different t- traditions, to learn um, about things that I had kind of assumed every, every Christian believed. Well, maybe there was a little bit more room for nuance or even disagreement and, and perhaps that was okay. And I, I found it to be quite an enriching experience. However, at the end of all that, um, I, I guess I was left with a little bit of an existential question of, okay, now where do I fit right. in here? And I think I'm still wrestling with that a little bit today. But um, I think that at Providence, I had, I had uh, gained such an appreciation for the, the depth of the varying Christian traditions that... Um, I was left with the question, well, am I a Mennonite just because this is the, the place that I was born and grew up in um, and everyone that I knew was a Mennonite? Or is there perhaps something to this tradition that I still want to remain a part of? And so certainly that was that was not the only reason I went to CMU, but but definitely played a significant part in my my moving from, from Providence uh, to CMU for my MA. Yeah. And for, for our listeners, Providence is a is a kind of a big tent evangelical school south of Winnipeg. Um, it's intentionally interdenominational, and like you'll find people of pretty much every religious tradition there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for me, it was like a really liberatory atmosphere, and I bounced around in different church traditions until I finally landed with the Anglicans. And obviously, you felt like some of that um, pull as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, but you decided, unlike me, who just jumped shipped and, and joined the Anglicans, uh, you you decided to kind of like drill back down into your own tradition and, and figure out uh, what that was all about. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so you went to CMU, and um, now you are doing a PhD in in theology at uh, Aberdeen University. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about what your what you're researching there? Yeah, certainly. So yeah, I'm about uh, about a year and a half to a PhD in theological ethics at the University of Aberdeen. My my research um, is um, it's concerned with the Christian lives of people with intellectual disabilities. Um, I yeah, I'm, I'm using the the work of uh, Karl Barth, who I mentioned earlier. And, and his work on, on the vocation of the Christian, um, which for him 
it means to be a Christian means to be a witness to the God who is the beginning and end of all that is. And then he kind of spends a bunch of time uh, fleshing out what he means by that. And so I'm, I'm trying to take what, what Bart says about uh, the Christian life and Christian vocation as witnesses and see if there is a way to apply that to the Christian lives of people with intellectual disabilities. Cool. Now, um, where does your interest in persons with disability come from? Are, do you have family members with disability or? Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any family members uh, with disabilities, uh, but um, in, in between Providence and CMU, I, I took a year off of school and um, just wanted to, to work. I, I had uh, plans on getting married and so i knew that i needed some money and i needed a job and uh, i just kind of happened into a job as a disability support worker it wasn't something that i was looking for it was um really that i had applied to a bunch of different jobs and nobody was getting back to me and they were the ones who did right and so um not really knowing what i was getting myself into i worked in uh a work-based day program for, uh, yeah, adult, varying adults with this, with varying dis- disabilities, um, where we would, uh, we would work five days a week on different, uh, different projects and contracts and, and whatever, and, and ship those out. And then, uh, after, after a year, um, we, when we moved into Winnipeg, it just became too far to commute. So I, I, I stayed in the field and then worked, for about three and a half years um, in a residential home uh, for people with intellectual disabilities. So so all in all, I've worked, uh, before starting my PhD, I uh, worked almost five years with people with intellectual disabilities um, in more of like a, a care support setting. Right, right. And, um, and so, it was kind of like out of this work that you were doing that you kind of started to have some questions uh, or, or how did you put like, you know, it could have just been another job you did. I've yeah. worked a lot of random jobs. Um, but how did that, how did that move to becoming like, you know, the all consuming thing that is a PhD dissertation? Yeah, totally. Um, it, it was never my intention to, to turn my work into uh, dissertation. Um, again, it's pr- kind of something that just happened along the way. I I was kind of pushed into it a little bit. I think um, not violently, but maybe maybe there's some gentle prodding along the way. I know that uh, I didn't really even know when I had got that first job as a disability support worker that there was something called disability theology at all. Right. Um, and I I know that uh, you had you had mentioned it to me that, Oh, maybe this is, this could be a good thing to do. But even at that time, I, I didn't give it too much consideration. Um, I had a, a, when I got to CMU, I had a couple profs who were like, Oh, maybe you could do these things together. And then I think it was just the result of a, a, a number of different people kind of planting seeds that, uh, that I, I figured, you know what, I can, I can take an opportunity to explore this. And, and I knew that at some point in my, MIA, I wanted to write a thesis because I knew that uh, PhD work was potentially on the horizon for me and I wanted to set myself up for that. Yeah. And so I just, 
I was throwing around different ideas and, and writing papers on different subjects that interested me. And um, yeah, one of my profs along the way encouraged me to write write a paper on disability. And so I did. One paper led to another, another on to another, and then I, I ended up writing my MA thesis on um, theological anthropology and intellectual disability. So really it was just a, a Christian account of why do people with intellectual disabilities matter? Why do they have worth? What is what is a Christian reason for saying that we should take the existence of people with intellectual disabilities seriously? Right. Um, and that's kind of where I ended up uh, at the end of my MA. And, and were, you, were you working on Karl Barth with that as well? Or? I was, yeah. So I, I had kind of deployed his theological anthropology um, as my my lens by which to understand people with intellectual disabilities, I suppose. Right. Right. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's definitely like a promising uh, field and a really important one, especially um, you know, there's just still so many barriers for people with with mm -hmm. uh, disabilities, and particularly in the church. Mm -hmm. um, now, somebody that I know both you and I have read quite extensively uh, is Jean Vanier. Mm -hmm. And Jean Vanier, uh, mo many of you might know Jean Vanier as the founder of L'Arche. Uh, L'Arche is kind of an intentional community uh, for people with disabilities and uh, for their support workers. They kind of live together. Um, and Jean Vanier was the, the son of former Governor General Georges Vanier. Uh, for sports fans out there, I think there's something called the Vanier Cup. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, what sport is that for, Dan? You uh, it's for uh, Canadian University football. Oh, very good. Yeah, so that, the same Vanier family. Uh, Jean Vanier, massively, massively influential in the field of, of disability theology. Mm -hmm. um, and I know... It, in your master's thesis, you also kind of touch on, on Vanier. Mm -hmm. I think I pushed you on that <laughs> as much as anybody else. Um, but in the past year, we found out that Jean Vanier, like so many other uh, Christian men of the, the last few decades, uh, was caught up in some pretty egregious um, kind of sexual abuse scandals. Um, and we've talked about this a lot, but um, I was just wondering what your thoughts were about what happens when somebody who's been so formative, so important for like a whole generation of disability theologians and for um, even just how disability support work is done today. Like L'Arche continues to be a, like a standard bearer for, for that kind of work. Um, what, what do we do with figures like like Vanier? That's a good question. Um, it's one that I, that I'm trying to wrestle through myself as well. Um, uh, yeah. When, when we, when we learned about this, these allegations just, just under a year ago, um, it was, it was one of the more, one of the most disorienting, uh, moments of my my Christian faith um, because of how high of a regard I held him in. Um, like, yeah, like you said, I had 
I had written a chapter on, on my master's thesis on, on his work. He was he was highly influential on on how I um, how I sought to live as a Christian in the world today. And um, yeah, he his his abuses have left me with far more questions than answers. Um, yeah, um, I, I just this last week came across a, a reference um, to Larsh in a place that I didn't expect it. It was on a, in a biography on the the Winnipeg sports fan legend Dancing Gabe um, okay. and, his, and his experience in an institution in in Portage and kind of, and then it, it had a little bit of a sidebar in there that the the guy who kind of pushed Manitoba out of institutionalization for people with intellectual disabilities did so because of an encounter with Larsh wow. uh, in the late '60s. And so, yeah, the, we cannot uh, understate the impact that Larsh has had on the lives of people with intellectual disabilities across the world. Yeah. And can, I think... Can you imagine Winnipeg sports without dancing Gabe? No, you, you actually can't. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and um, yeah, so they, it's just been... It's been so so um liberatory for people with intellectual disabilities to whether it's in a large home or just kind of the the ripple effects of large um the i think the one potential saving grace is that as he got as he got uh up in his years vanier started to, to distance himself from large a little bit not um because he disagreed with him but because he knew that that Larsh had to be more than just his project and so Larsh has kind of taken on a life of its own beyond Vanier even before he passed but now um since since his passing about about two years ago um so I think I think that that there are still things that we can that we can learn from Larsh uh, the way that they they choose to operate in the world the way that they choose to live with and prioritize the experience of people with intellectual disabilities. However, um, whatever, whatever reading of Vanier we decide might be appropriate today, we, I think we have to do it with, with a critical eye, um, on whether or not his, his theology was something that was distinct from his, abuses and misconduct or whether that's something that was kind of built in altogether. Yeah. Um, I I know, I know for me that, that like um, I spent a year uh, working as a director of of an immigrant organization and I was actively trying to bake in to the structures of that organization. um, A lot of Vanier's teaching on friendship Mm -hmm. uh, because primarily the work that we were doing was, um, creating bonds of friendship and social solidarity between kind of settled Canadians and, and newly arrived Canadians. And uh, <laughs> then uh, reading the report, discovering that a lot of that stuff was drawn directly from um, some of the, the really toxic theology of his mentor uh, who kind of inducted him into this way of, of abuse uh, left me just, I, I spent an entire afternoon crying in the Birmingham library, mm-hmm. uh, when that report came out because <laughs> like, you know, did I inflict the continue to inflict this on the world? Like, I don't think so, but, um, yeah, 
I think the the next couple of years we're gonna we're gonna start seeing people um, actively and explicitly wrestling with exactly that question. Um, now that I guess kind of like the first wave of just shock is is kind of ceasing. Now that we're almost a year out of, from these allegations, people are, are moving on from the question of, of how could he do this to, okay, now what do we do with this? Right. Um, so I know I know of a couple of, of different journal articles that, that are going to be coming out in the next probably year, year and a half um, that are wrestling with this question. Um, at Aberdeen, where we have a, a seminar where probably about a third to half of the, the material coming up this semester is wrestling with this question. So people are, are starting to do this this um, heavy and ugly work to kind of get at that question. But it's it's not something that we can just come at with a simple answer. And I think a simple answer one way or another just um, does injustice to the situation as it stands, both for the victims and for the people who continue to live in and operate in large communities today yeah yeah you know uh there aren't that many churches around today that uh are free of some sort of scandal uh and the anglican church is definitely no exception um so you know a big part of what what we're trying to figure out is you know it after the after the residential schools and after kind of you know i i talk to the bishop sometimes and He's just constantly finding out new sins uh, mm. that the church committed at some point or another, and um, it's it's hard to to keep on doing uh, doing this work when it just seems like uh, like we just screw up kind of so often. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I guess like it brings me back to your research, I guess, which is I have a question um, about. Uh, what you think about so so you're you're developing a theology of witness uh, and I guess I'm interested in both um, how you think about witness in terms of the role that persons with disability have as witnesses but also um, like the church and its its role as a witness both kind of outwardly to the world and also to persons of, with disability in their midst. Like there's kind mm-hmm. of, there's different uh, matrices, I guess, directions in which this kind of witnessing flows. And I just, I just wondered what, uh, what you make of that. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot within there, a lot that uh, I still need to kind of uh, wrestle with it and figure out for my own research. But I think, um, what, what is so central to, to Bart's understanding of witness is that, well, witness is something that we do. Uh, it is always something that, that, that is enacted through, through bodies, whether that is the bodies of intellectual disabilities or, or ecclesial bodies. Um, witness, witness does not begin with those bodies, but witness begins with the work of the spirit, the active work of the spirit amongst us. And so there's, there's continually a a return uh, to God, to the, to uh, 
heeding to the spirit that that is essential for for Bart. Bart could has been and could potentially rightly be criticized in in some cases as being a bit of an a bit of an iconoclast uh, in the sense that he he has a bit of an aversion to relying too heavily on on Christian practices or um, anything really that that kind of begins in and of ourselves and, and is distinct from the spirit. Right. And um, um, whether, whether or not he, he is right or, or wrong in that, where that kind of, where that kind of leads us to is that Bart is insistent that we always ought to return to um, what he calls the, the command of God, the command that, that orients our witness. However, um, Bart is also very aware that that we are quite sinful people, and that we continue to to live in grace, but be mired by sin over and over again. And so, um, that that's why our witness can never begin with ourselves, but only can be that which is empowered by the work of the Spirit. And so, then um, we can never really rest on our own laurels. We can never assume that we've we've quite gotten it right, but we we have to uh, trust in God that that God will continue God's good work through us as witnesses. Right. And so, so what is the command of God? That's a good question. Um, there, there. Bart doesn't address that specifically there's not one thing that he can point to that is says this is the command of god however the the command um is is something which which occurs within the covenant of, of grace the covenant of grace is simply our our way of being in the world with god in the sense that god has called us to be god's people um and so the command can take multiple forms. It can come through scripture. It can come through, through the voice of a witness. Um, but um, it's something that, that when, it, when it encounters us, it encounters us. Um, the word he would use is, is an event. Simply mm-hmm. stating that it's, it's something active, which, which we can recognize in that, in that moment, that this is, this is something from beyond ourselves. Um, and so, um, yeah, with kind of within this covenant of grace, there there's a lot of discernment of kind of of the way that we operate within the world. It's it's a very very holistic command. It it affects every every part of our being. Um, but all of but, these kind of duties that flow the kind of the command side of it that all is kind of premised within this underlying covenant of grace. So God's grace yeah. and God's activity kind of goes ahead of that yes yeah bart is very very insistent sometimes repetitive that it always begins with the work of god in the world it never ever begins with us that's really interesting because um in the in the book of alternative services we have uh uh, which for for the anglican church is one of our prayer books we have uh, the baptismal covenant and it has um a series of things that you affirm 
uh, they're all around various verbs. So it's I believe, or, I believe, I continue, I will persevere, strive, proclaim, seek and save. Um, there's like these six kind of articles and, uh, and then there's content of what exactly that is. Um, but the response to each one is, I will with God's help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the kind of the logic of the whole thing is that like, if we were asked, will you do these things? Probably the answer is no, right? Like, so then like the, <laughs> the command without, so the command or the law without any prevenient grace, like we can only answer no, but the, mm-hmm. but the command kind of within the covenant of grace, which like that is in a certain sense, uh, really what you're entering into in your baptism. Uh, it, it is enables kind of the communicant to say, I will with God's help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah I, that's, that's really great. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a good, it's a good little, um, it's a good little addition to the baptismal um, liturgy, I think, for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, yeah, I, so I, we, I, we're running a bit long here, but I was just wondering if you had, <clears throat> I know it's, uh, I don't know, perhaps trite and moralizing to, to ask you to end with kind of one thing that the church should be doing uh, in terms of persons with disability, but I don't think it is. And here's why. The first time I ever had an article published in like uh, a church magazine, um, it was on climate change. And I had some folks reach out to me and say, oh, thank you. I've never heard anybody from the church say anything about climate change besides stop littering. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, that's pretty pathetic. Um, I, and I knew for a fact that there were other people saying way better things than what I had said, but, but the fact that it wasn't hitting the pews was kind of unfortunate. So I don't think actually it'd be the worst thing in the world, um, for you to say something more than just, oh, make sure we have an elevator, uh, or something like that, which are, are important things to be clear. But, um, what, what would be one thing that churches should be considering and kind of like really thinking about when it comes to, uh, the presence of persons with disability in their midst? Yeah, I, I would say take seriously the possibility that that people with intellectual disabilities uh, are conduits of this the spirit's work, that that they are concrete examples um, and and active agents of the spirit's work in our communities and. Um, without without the the witness of people with intellectual disabilities in our churches, um, not only are people with intellectual disabilities being kept out of the worshiping communities, but we perhaps might be missing out on a particular uh, manifestation of the spirit. Um, to put it abstractly, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, right. But yeah, that really where, where my research is going and what I've become more and more convinced of is that um, that in, in our day and age, um, just where we're at with um, whether you want to call it late modernity or neoliberalism or really yeah. look just the way that we that we view the, the dominant power structures and governments and 
whatever, um, that, that in the face of this, that the, the presence of people with intellectual disabilities perhaps may offer us glimpses into the, the way that the spirit is at work amongst us. Hmm. So, so if there, what would be some like practical ways that we could, uh, could, could do that? Like, what would your advice be to church leaders or, or people in the pews of like how, how to make space for that? Yeah. One, one common criticism that, that you hear a lot is, well, we don't, we don't do anything for people with disabilities because we don't have anyone with disability in our congregation. Mm. When um, there's some really great research coming out of the States, I believe it's at Vanderbilt University, which is suggesting that um, it kind of the, it's the old field of dreams line. Like if you build it, they will come. Right. So if, if you don't have any, people with disabilities in your congregation, maybe the reason is because people with disabilities or often their parents uh, of children with disabilities don't, don't feel welcome, feel like um, they might be disruptive. Um, Perhaps they can't enter into your building or, or enter into places where they, they need to go to be able to receive whatever the church um, is offering. Um, but I, I think that, um, yeah, if, if, uh, you are in a church, if you're in a leadership position in a church and, and there's not a single person with disabilities within your congregation, I, I would encourage you to ask the question of why, and is there anything that we can be doing differently that perhaps would allow this to be a more accessible space um, and and to really ask that question in with the possibility of being encountered in a way that is uncomfortable. I think that uh, we like to toss around words like accessibility and inclusion, which are which are really great, and I think at the heart are, are well-meaning terms, but they don't always uh, come with with the reality that. Um, there might be disruption as well if we um, operate our spaces as inclusive, accessible spaces, that the presence of people with disabilities might cause us to change things that we have become comfortable with or, or used to. And, and that's okay. It's, it's okay if, if, we, if we modify certain things um, that make spaces more accessible. Right. Well, yeah, definitely lots to think about there. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time this morning with us and um, all the best in your in your continuing studies. And maybe we'll have you on again when uh, when you've found some more answers. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm sure I'll have even more questions by that time too. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.